Most of us in this world know at least one person who has died from an opioid overdose. In today's episode, we're going to talk about why this occurs, how this was created, and the treatment options that exist to stop this epidemic and create a radical change in our world and save lives. Let's go. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, I hope this finds you well no matter what season of life that you're in. I have a really interesting episode today that I'm excited to bring you. Recently, I've had some people asking me to do uh, different episodes on uh, different treatments and illnesses and, and concepts such as that. And I've recently been getting some uh, texts and different things about doing an episode on medication-assisted treatment, which is what we use to treat like opioid use disorder as well as a little bit of alcohol use disorder. And I thought, what a great opportunity to kind of discuss this really popular but somewhat uh, controversial topic. And so we're going to discuss it from a numerous different concepts today. We're going to get a little sciencey, but I don't want to get too, too sciencey because I know that can be a little bit boring, but I, I do want to bring that in because I think it's really important to understand what's going on for a lot of these people. So I think step one would be, what is addiction, right? Like why do we even need a treatment for an opioid use disorder? So to, I think we need to identify two core terms to start this uh, session out. So the first would be, what is addiction? So addiction is just compulsive behaviors that are in an attempt to meet some version of a need, an experience, a feeling. And this can this occurs in numerous concepts, right? Even outside of substances. You can get addicted to really anything that's going to elevate dopamine or elevate some feel-good experiences in the human brain, whether that's chocolate cake, pornography, sex, uh, gambling, work, certain peer groups, anything can become an addiction to you based on how you do it because it, you, you compulsively do it over and over and over attempting to create a feeling. The second concept is dependence. And so when we do this behavior over and over, many of these experiences can create our brain to have a dependence on it and our body to be dependent on it. And so without it, we then have a very negative or abnormal experience. A perfect example of this is caffeine. If you're someone who drinks a lot of coffee, maybe you drink a lot of sodas, and you decide you're going to stop, quickly within a day or two, you're going to find yourself having headaches. And that is that withdrawal of the caffeine from the dependence that you had on it. And we see it in other substances too, and other experiences as well, that people have these physiological withdrawal symptoms from not doing these compulsive behaviors that create these experiences. So that is addiction, which is the compulsive behavior for the feeling, and then dependence, which is how the body becomes dependent on it to create these feelings over and over. And so why is this important what we talk about? Well, throughout these addiction concepts and dependent concepts, one of the main things that we have seen, not only in this country, but in a lot of countries, is opioids or opium being used as a compulsive, as a dependency and compulsive behavior. And so I think the first step is what is opiates? So opioids come from opium, and opium is a uh, substance that comes from the poppy seed that you can extract from the poppy seed that's grown in uh, Eastern Asia and other places around the world. And so many, many years ago, way before 
epidemics and all these things, you're able to take that poppy seed, extract that opium, and use it for medicinal purposes. And this was used for pain relief and in surgeries. We've seen opium being traded across cultures back during the trade eras. And so it was something that was seen to be quite medicinal, primarily in surgical procedures and different pain experiences. But as time went on, there was this desire to create more opiates, see if you could synthetically make these opium opium derivatives in a way to create different experiences because it was really difficult to harness all of the effects that opium has from the poppy seed unless you begin to mess with some of the molecules in it. And so that is how opium and opioids come on the scene. And so what do opiates do? So I think it's really important to know that we all as human beings have opioid receptors in our body. We know there are five distinct opioid receptors, three of them being the most prominent that we talk about. And so we're going to get a little sciencey here. Uh, but we have three main ones, and that's the mu receptors, the kappa receptors, and the delta receptors. And these receptors all create specific experiences for the human body and brain. And we have these receptors all over our body, in our spinal cord, in our gut, in our muscles, in our brain. They're everywhere. And so these receptors do different, um, have different effects throughout the entire body. But mu, which is probably the most well-known and well-studied, has a lot of different effects. And it creates this pain-relieving it can be euphoric, it can cause sedation, it can cause respiratory depression, and it also can cause that physical dependence that we talked about earlier. And we really don't understand why some people may experience euphoria while other people experience like sedation and pain relief, but we just do know that it creates this really powerful effect. Then we know that the delta receptor is really also pain relieving, but it also starts to mess with like dopamine. And so because of that, that's where some people begin to maybe experience some of that really inhibition of, um, of emotion and that relaxation and that numbness. And then the kappa receptors you see be related a lot of that sensation seeking behavior. So it's kind of that driver to go do more, go do more. And so what's important is we all have these receptors. And ultimately, we were created to use these receptors and naturally occurring opium, also called endogenous opium, in our body for pain relief. So if you were to go to the go to your door right now, slam your hand in it, your brain is going to release a little bit of opium or opiates, opioids, and place it on the mu receptor primarily to relieve that pain. We all have this. So I think that's what's really interesting about this is that this isn't like amphetamines or caffeine or nicotine or alcohol. We don't naturally have those things in our body, but we naturally have opioids in our body that have a purpose. And so you can see where if you have this naturally occurring experience in the body and we're using a medicine that just adds on top of that, how things may get a little interesting in the body when we're doing this. And that is where this all begins as a problem because you're taking naturally occurring biological experiences in the human brain and synthetically touching it in a way that is creating an elevated experience. And that is something that we have not seen before in the world of human biology, primarily because it's really hard to just add on more of something that does what opiates do. So, we have these receptors. 
You can touch them with these opioid plants. They take these plants. They start making new synthetic versions of them. Pharmaceutical companies start making different versions of them. And they're being used. And you start to see misuse being you know, being present, you know, 50s and the 60s, you start to see, you know, as morphine is created as this really, really powerful drug to manage things in the hospitals and surgical procedures, you see methadone be created, you see a lot of different versions be created. It's there in a purpose for pain relief and the management of different opioid receptors in more of like inpatient settings, not using the outpatient way in, in any way. You've seen, for example, methadone be created to be, you know, for chronic pain, as well as used on, on battlefields and different things like that. So had a lot of different purposes. But where this becomes a huge problem, and we're not going to go too deep, deep into this, but in the early 90s, the introduction of a medicine called oxycotton or oxycodone really changed the game in the opiate world. And whether it was due to poor provider education, poor morals by providers, marketing tactics by the pharmaceutical companies, lying to see there's a lot of concepts into this. But what you see is this overprescription of these medicines in an attempt to quote unquote treat pain. And so as overprescriptions occur, you begin to see a lot more people getting these sub, getting these medicines. Well, what happens for a lot of the people who are taking these medicines is that the opiate receptors, as we talked about before, the mu kappa delta, as you touch them, as you create this release of more opium in the brain, you then find that it's kind of hard to keep doing that because these receptors become somewhat tolerant to the experience. Because remember, we were using it initially for just like inpatient use, surgical procedures, use it once it's over. And then you start seeing it being used in chronic pain and now we're seeing it used across the board in the outpatient setting. And so now you're seeing it being used daily and because it's being used daily, these these receptors become somewhat tolerant to it and so it takes more and it takes more and it takes more. And so then you see the mass use of these substances. There's a lot of really good documentaries that exist out there if you want to know more knowledge on this. Um, there's a, a docudrama called Dope Sick, which is really powerful. Just the creation of oxycodone and what occurred there. You have The Pharmacist, which is on some of the streaming platforms, which is really good. You also have um, the Oxycontin Express or the Oxycodone School Bus by Mariana Van Zegler. I mean, there's a there's a ton of documentaries out there that if you're interested in how this was created, I would recommend checking it out. But for this podcast, so what we see in the as oxycodone is pushed into America and pushed into the, the outpatient world, we begin to see three waves of opiate use that then set up this epidemic that then led to the death of hundreds of thousands of people. And so in the early 90s, here you have oxycodone. Oxycodone continues to be overprescribed, overprescribed. Purdue Pharma does some very terrible things, which then leads to even more production of these medicines and more prescriptions of these medicines to the point that there are people who have a ton of these medicines in their cabinet. People are able to access a lot of these medicines and over, overuse them or sell them. And so the government cracks down. So from early 90s to really the early 2000s, there's this mass use of these medicines, and then there's a crackdown. And a lot of these clinics get closed or certain providers get in trouble. The Purdue Pharma gets in trouble. And so you start to believe, well, maybe this is going to calm down. Maybe you see a, a change in this. Unfortunately, as we talked about earlier, when you touch these receptors, you become dependent. And if you become dependent, that feels really terrible. And if you feel really terrible, you're going to desire to take more, primarily because feeling terrible is not fun and you need to do something different. So if I can't get it from a provider or some clinic, 
you go to the street. And so in 2010, we see this massive increase of heroin use in America, primarily because heroin was easier to get due to some illegal activity occurring in our country, but then also it became this really fast-acting drug that people could use. And it can be used in a lot of different ways, and so you see the heroin use, and that's when the second wave of the opioid epidemic occurs. Fast forward three more years, and we click into the third wave, which is the introduction of fentanyl and what it would do, of this super powerful opiate that really saturated those receptors in a way that created these profound effects, but also led to death for many, many, many people. So you have these three waves in this addiction dependence epidemic. You have the 90s with the overprescription. You have the 2010 following the downfall of a lot of those clinics and the introduction of heroin into our communities at a higher level. And then in 2013, you see the introduction of fentanyl. And up around 2016, 2017, you start to see a decrease in these numbers. And we'll talk about why that occurred in a minute. And then things seem to be improving a little bit. And then we enter what I think is the fourth wave of the opioid epidemic, and that is the post-COVID epidemic. And what we've seen was during the COVID pandemic, there was a radical increase in opioid use. So for example, from May 2019 to May 2020, there were 80,000 opioid related deaths over an entire year. It's the largest 12-month overdose death toll in the history of America. And the question was why? Like what was going on? And there were a ton of reasons for this, right? There was a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of very scary things happening in the world. There's also very challenges getting into any version of treatment, right? Whether you're trying to get to church, you're trying to get to NA, you're trying to get to a suboxone clinic, whatever, it's become very challenging. And so you just seen this mass use of substances and this mass increase in use, which led to deaths. And since that time, we've seen it increase year by year since that. So we're kind of in this fourth wave. And we know if you, you watch the news or you, you know keep track, we see the, the versions of fentanyl continuing to elevate, meaning that they're kind of changing how they work. They become more powerful. They touch those receptors in a stronger way, creating a stronger effect, leading to overdose a lot easier. And so we're kind of living in this world now. So for example, there were around 83,000 deaths of opioid overdoses in 2022 we don't have the number or 2021 we don't have all the numbers from 2022 yet but it doesn't look very promising and we've seen states that have these radical increases in deaths from this and so as you see these increases occur over time the question is how can you help this like what can you do in 2021 220 people a day died of opioids Meaning 220 people every single day overdosed and died off a molecule that came from a poppy plant that got synthetically made into either an illicit substance or a medicine. That is so radical. And so the need for something different had to occur. And so early into the treatment modalities, you see addiction treatment look a lot of different ways. And there's, and I'm going to preface this in, in a lot of different Aries, as we go through this, there's a lot of ways to help people who are unwell in their addiction. I've seen people get sober in so many different ways, whether it be through these drastic, crazy life experiences, whether it be through spiritual experiences, whether it be through group therapy or physical or psychological therapies, treatment facilities, going to jail. I've seen people get sober in a lot of different ways. But we know that a lot of people don't get sober and a lot of people or misusing these substances every day and dying. And so how do you help them? 
for a long time, the, the old adage was that, you know, you maybe went to like an inpatient treatment center and then you started going NA and AA, which was the Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous based on the substances you were using. And that was a really incredible modality. Um, you had this 12-step program and in these programs, you you know, get connected with a higher power. You begin to, you know, really challenge the ego of the human psyche. You kind of work through some of these um, concepts of your brain and the and the behaviors that you've done. And, and it, it's really powerful. It is very powerful. And there's a lot of people who I know that have gotten sober from it. But we also know there's a lot of people who don't. Uh, research has shown us anywhere between 5 to 7 or 5 to 10% of people who go to NA will stay sober. So for every 100 people that walk through the door of an NA meeting, about seven to ten of them will stay sober, meaning that anywhere between eighty-three to ninety of those people will keep using substances in some form or fashion. Hence, the reason two hundred twenty plus people die every day of opioids. So we have to do something different. If we're losing that many people in this community, something's got to change. And so throughout this time, we also seen the medical community try to figure out what can we do to help people who were addicted to these substances. And so you start to see the introduction of different medicines in an attempt to fix this, primarily using it to try to keep people from using the opiate instead. And it made a lot of sense, right? So like um, in the the 1950s, as I said earlier, methadone is created. You start to see it really be used in the 90s and um, in early 2000s where they're trying to use this medicine in a way to keep people from withdrawing off opioids to be used in a way where you're not lowering or craving or urging to use those opioids. And primarily how you're doing that is you're also touching that opioid receptor fully, just like all the other opioids are. But this version of the molecule is made in a way where it's a little bit harder to abuse. It can be abused a little bit harder. And it also creates these plateau effects in the brain. And Methadone is very helpful, and I think for some people it was helpful. It's kind of fell out of vogue a little bit over the years, but it's kind of coming back in the past year, and we'll kind of talk about why that's occurring. But there was definitely a need for something different. We, we know that. I think you know methadone was very helpful, but there was definitely a need for something else. And so fast forward a few more years, and you see the introduction of this molecule called buprenorphine. And so buprenorphine is a really, really interesting medication from just a molecule perspective. We're not going to get into the boring stuff with it. But going back to what we talked about from the biology perspective, so we have all we have these receptors in our brain. These receptors release opioids. And so when we take these opium or whatever opiate you take, you then release more opiate, and that creates these feelings. And, and to create those feelings, you have to touch the receptor, right? So it's kind of like... Um, Imagine that you have like a, a key, and so when you turn that key, the door is going to open in a certain amount of way. And so for a lot of people, when you take like heroin or certain things, or Oxycontin, morphine, you put that key in and that door goes wide open and you have this huge experience. Buprenorphine is a little bit different because it only partially touches the receptor. So rather than fully touching it and blowing the door wide open, it partially touches it where it cracks it just enough to release a little opiate but not enough where you could overdose on it, die on it, 
do make terrible choices on it, that kind of thing. And so that's where this drug became really popular. And so it started being used in a lot of outpatient settings for people who were addicted to opium or op different versions of opiates. So you come in, you're using an opiate, you want to get sober, you start taking this medicine, you get out of those withdrawal symptoms that we talked about before, where it's just terrible for people that I see come into my clinic where they're, you know, they have nausea and diarrhea and vomiting and they're shaking all over and sweating and they're having all these terrible experiences. You stop that from occurring, which was primarily the reason most people continue to use opiates in the first place. And then you keep that opiate receptor slightly touched just enough so that you don't crave and urge it, but you also don't get high from it. And that's something that's really cool because having something that's going to touch it is going to help that receptor heal because that receptor is being damaged every time it's touched by that full heroin, fentanyl, that kind of thing. What's interesting about buprenorphine, though, is that it has a very strong attraction to those receptors. So not that we're going to get too in the weeds, but how neurobiology works is that the attraction to the receptor will decide how much that receptor prefers to see that drug on it and the effect that it has. Well, for whatever reason, buprenorphine has that what we call the highest affinity of any of opiates that were created. Meaning that when you take this drug, if you, or you take this medicine, you go out and take another drug, that drug won't touch that receptor because this medicine is latched onto it to a place that it cannot overcome it which is so powerful, right? So if I'm taking this medicine, I'm addicted to that substance, I'm no longer addicted to it, I'm living my life every day, and then I make a poor choice, very rarely are you going to experience anything from it. And it decreases your risk of death because it's harder to overdose because that receptor can't touch it or that drug can't touch the receptor. So we have this medicine that becomes widely available that then begins to sit on these receptors keep people from withdrawing, keep people from craving and urging, and also will block the effect of the other opiates that you may be taking if you choose to make a poor effect. To add on to this, what you see with this medicine is it has what's called a plateau effect or a ceiling effect, meaning that once you've partially touched all the receptors, you're not going to go back around and partially touch the other side. So you've maxed it out, meaning that the chance of like respiratory depression and all those other terrible things that came from fully saturating those doors or those receptors can occur. So it's like if another analogy we can use would be that if you know we're just blowing open doors in a hotel over and over and over, we blow so many of them open that you die. Well, now instead of doing that, we're just going to crack X amount of doors around and there comes a point that it can't crack any more doors open. And so then it's done. It's cashed out. And so we know there's a certain milligram dosing in that that kind of keeps it from getting any higher and you can't do any more and those receptors are blocked. And so with this partial agonism, you begin to see subutex or buprenorphine, as we've been talking about, become the, the treatment of choice for a lot of people as it has the ability to keep you out of withdrawals, help cravings, help urges, and really get people's lives back. But because buprenorphine, or also called subutex, was a tablet of opioids, there was still a risk for misuse. And so what you've seen is science came together of how can you deter this? Because there were some people who still made poor choices, not everyone, but just like with anything that exists in our world, some people choose to make poor decisions with it. And ultimately, that did occur. And so from that, 
came a medication called Suboxone, or it's a combination therapy of buprenorphine and naloxone. And buprenorphine we've already talked about in depth before, but just a real quick, naloxone, also known as Narcan, is the opioid reversal drug. And so it's a medication that is used to reverse people who are overdosing from these substances. It comes into all these receptors that we talked about and cleaned them out. It's kind of like a... Uh, a Zamboni on an ice rink of just cleaning off everything, or you can kind of see it as a, uh, a the car in the driving range for the golf course, just taking everything out. It's gone. It's just completely gone. And that's what keeps people from dying when they've taken too much opioids. But we know that naloxone can only be absorbed in two ways, either intranasally, so kind of like in one of those um, intranasal injections, like you see with certain... Um, Flonase and that kind of stuff, or through injection, like through the bloodstream. So that's why you'll also see it be given, like within a needle, like you give it in the thigh during an overdose. So you have a medicine that can only be absorbed in two ways, which are really the two ways that people sometimes use these substances, meaning that people you can use opiates intranasally or they'll inject it, not into the muscle, but into the vein. And so you find that, okay, if we can give this medicine in that way that would stop that, what do we do with the buprenorphine? And well, buprenorphine is only absorbed through underneath the tongue. Primarily, you can swallow it, but you will lose most of it because it can't really survive the pH of the stomach. And so you have this medication that can only be absorbed underneath the tongue for the best. If you were to absorb it in the other ways, the Narcan is then activated. Hence why Suboxone now is the most popular treatment for, med- for opioid use disorder. Because you have a medication that keeps people out of withdrawal, helps their cravings and urges and get their life back, but it also has built-in safety mechanisms to keep people from making really poor choices with that medicine. Because if you were to snort it and shoot it, the buprenorphine may kind of be activated, but not really. And then the Narcan is activated, sending them in withdrawal and keeping them alive and keeping them from having any bad things happen to them. So it's an incredible safety mechanism that was created to be able to do this for people. Now, there are people who try to make some poor choices with that medicine and go even higher, but you have to take a large, large amount of that medication, which ultimately you're trying to, you, there's a chance you're going to get hurt anyways, just trying to do that. But for the average person who's on this medication, for most of the people that we see, it's not a problem. Another thing that they've decided to do with the Suboxone or the buprenorphine is rather than having tablets, they make them in films. And so those films make it a little bit harder to divert. It has made it a little bit easier to make other poor choices with them, such as like in correctional settings and that type of thing. But ultimately, you see it be very helpful for people, especially if tablets are very triggering if you were used to using tablets. Over the past six months to a year, we've also seen the emergence of another version of this Suboxone called Sublicade, where people get it put into like a uh, gel and it's then injected into their stomach. So because that gel is around the molecule compound, you then see it not activate the Narcan and then it just stays in your body and then there's no pills being used at all. And so there's a lot of clinics that are moving to that kind of treatment. We can go way in depth with how that, how that works from a molecular perspective uh, reason, but I think that's just a little bit too much for this podcast, but it's just something to know that there are many clinics who are doing this who completely eliminates the need to even have any pills, and it's just something that you get once a month that you come into the clinic for. And so as you can see, partial agonism, decreased cravings, withdrawal, and urges, safety mechanisms to keep people from overdosing and keep people from misusing, hence the reason this medicine becomes so popular. And from that, we've seen a lot of people get a lot of help. 
I know personally, just as a clinician, I see so many people have their lives changed because they do this medicine. Because ultimately, without the medicine, you're either locking yourself in a room for three days, sweating out, vomiting, throwing it up, possibly could die based on seizure activity and other issues with blood pressure. And then you still got to heal from it if you don't use the medicine. You may could do that. There are some people who do that. I'm not saying it's not possible. But for the people who cannot, what if there's another option for them to get their life together? I see people take this medicine and they get their kids back. They get a job. They get a home. They get their career back. They get their family back. And, and it's quite incredible. And what as we've had this medicine be more popular throughout the years, more research is being conducted to understand how powerful and effective it is for many people. And so what we've seen is that when you take this medicine for a year, a study that was published in 2000 and I would believe it was 18, identified that under a brain scan, the brains of someone who take this medicine and the brains of someone who's never taken this medicine look near identical through the fMRI scan, which primarily shows like blood activity and other functions of the brain. And so we believe that whether it's the elimination of the high withdrawal, whether it's the partial touching of these receptors that have been synthetically touched for so long and damaged, for either way, it begins to be healed. And I see people begin to taper off this medicine and I see them not need it anymore. Now, there's a lot of like misconceptions about that out there. We'll talk about that here in a second. But what we've seen as I said earlier, from the late 2018s, 2016s, the decline in opioid overdoses was primarily due to the introduction of these clinics. You started seeing clinics pop up that were able to do this kind of treatment all across the country. And the most effective treatment modalities are these very holistic, multimodal uh, therapies, different concepts that you're doing in your treatment, more than just taking this medicine that allows people to get well and ultimately become overcome their illness and so this begins to be popular and now we've got it in a lot of different settings and a couple of the other researches that i think is really cool about this is that the day you give someone buprenorphine they decrease their all-cause mortality rate by 50 percent so if i'm using an opiate i go into a clinic i say i want to get treatment i take that buprenorphine i decrease my chance of death that day by 50 percent 50%. That's so incredible. And so the question has always been, well, how effective is this medicine? What we see in, in most clinics is there's anywhere between 80 to 95% success rate with this medicine in these clinics. I know in our clinic, for example, we've done a study in during the pandemic, actually, through 2020 and into 2021, we had a, a 97% success rate of people abstaining from opioids with this medicine during the height of the overdose that's going on not only in our community but in the communities across the country you see this these people get well they're not misusing and they're doing the things that they need to do to get their life back and then some of those people have gotten sober since this time to a place where now they don't even need the medicine and then they came off of it so it's pretty incredible the success that you have so we have this addiction and this dependence we have an addiction and a dependence to a substance that is touches the naturally occurring processes of the human brain that we all experience and that we're all vulnerable to. Because ultimately, every single one of us, because we all have opioid receptors, are all vulnerable to becoming dependent and addicted on this. 
And as we've shifted our thinking in the world of addiction from it being this moral flaw to maybe even just a disease to now it's just this medical illness that needs to be treated, we see people having the opportunity to become well and no longer have these issues. Now, I think it's something to preface that this medicine along with methadone, and along with uh, Vivitrol, which is a blocker to the opioid receptors, they don't even allow opiates to touch it, but also doesn't release opiates, is that this isn't like a, like the magic bullet, right? Like this isn't going to fix everything. We know, as we said earlier, that addiction is this multifactored issue. And within this multifactored issue, there's numerous things that must occur. For most of the people that I see and that I know other providers see, therapies involved in some form or fashion. There's some societal things that need to happen, whether they can get back to work, whether they can find stable housing if they're homeless, or they can find some kind of housing in any way whatsoever. There's this need for, you know, some kind of like spiritual experience, whatever kind of religious background they may be in, getting into that world, whatever that looks like for them. They've got to do these all of these concepts. And so there are different modalities that help all of them, right? Like NAA is very high in the spiritual concepts as well as uh, like ego stuff. Psychotherapy is very high in the thoughts and feelings and understanding why you're using it in the first place. And then you have the medicines that help the biological issues that are occurring. And then there's other like herbs and, and psychotropic medicines that can be used to kind of heal the brain from whatever is like pushing some of this use. But that brings up, uh, I think, a, a good point as we're kind of unpacking this a bit is that what makes this addiction so much more challenging than other addictions is this addiction is that, as I said earlier, mimicking the natural responses of the human brain. So yeah, you know, if you're you know drinking alcohol every day and so you can't stop drinking alcohol, that is just a, a synthetic con, you know, construct you're putting in your body and it creates an experience in the brain. But that's not natural. What you're experiencing is not natural. It's just a release of other neurochemicals in your brain. Where opiates are very different. Opiates are being released anyways. It's just being elevated 10, 20, 30, 100 fold to where now you're having these abnormal experiences. And so it's more than just a social concept because you've got to fix the natural biological processes. And that's why some medicines seem to be way more effective in treating this compared to other addiction disorders such as cocaine, amphetamines, uh, THC, people who just like want to keep using that substance, or even like alcohol. So you have these natural biological processes that are being treated by this medicine. You have this multifactored approach in most clinics, which is the most successful, meaning you're getting therapy, social help, and you're able to get well. But there is a lot of like, hot topics that go in this, right? Now, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, am I trading one drug for another drug? You know, I'm, I'm getting rid of an opiate and I'm putting another opiate in my system. How am I getting sober? And one of the, I think the best response is you already have opiates in your body. You're going to have opiates in your body for the rest of your life because you have opiate receptors in, the, in your body that's going to release stuff. The difference is, is you've synthetically touched them to a place where they don't know how to function without being synthetically touched. So what if I can give it a medicine that can synthetically touch it in a way that can let it heal and then we can slowly taper off of it to a place where you no longer need that medicine. So you're not trading one for another. Rather, you're just putting a medicine on to fix it. That's like saying to a diabetic, well, just stop eating sugar. Well, if they stop eating sugar, that's fine, but their pancreas still can't manage their insulin and they're still going to have problems and need that insulin. 
This is the same way. Just because I'm not using an opiate doesn't mean my opiate receptors are healed. It just means I have a problem. And so ultimately, we just need to use these medicines to heal that, and it can be fixed, and people can become well again. Another misconception I hear a lot of is people say you're just, you know, it's, you can get dependent on this drug. You can get, and I'm, what I, my answer to that is you can get dependent on anything. You can depend on caffeine, you can depend on sugar, you can depend on TV, you can depend on social media. You can have a physiological dependence to anything that when you stop it, you're going to have an experience. However, we do know that as the brain begins to heal, it becomes a little bit easier to taper off. But because these receptors have been so damaged, the brain will adapt to having this on. So if you do go take it for a little bit and stop it cold turkey, you are not going to feel well. It's the same thing if you do other medicines, other substances caffeine, you're not going to feel well when you stop it. It's just heightened because of the receptors that's being touched. So yes, it can be a little bit harder to get off, but under a good provider, you can get off this medicine and feel well again if you if, if you get to a place where you're ready to stop. A lot of other people say, well, you're just like, you can misuse it. And ultimately you can misuse anything. And that's, I think that's another important concept. You can misuse any substance, you can misuse any drug, and there are going to be people who are going to make poor decisions with it. The positive to buprenorphine compared to other ones is only a partial. So even though it may create a big feeling for some people, you can't overdose on it, which is a really good concept. And I think that can be very safe in that way. Some people say, well, I took it and I had like this incredible experience. And what I would say to that is your opiate receptors are very, very sensitive. Whether you've never taken opiates before, or maybe you just have very sensitive opioid receptors, some people have very profound experiences on it. But when we're talking about people who are using IV heroin every day, we're talking about people who are using opioids to the point of overdosing. Their receptors are different than the average human, primarily because of the stuff that they've consumed. And that's for everybody, right? You take someone who drinks 500 milligrams of caffeine a day, their receptors are different to the person that only drinks 50 milligrams of caffeine a day. It's an adaptation that occurs in the brain. And that adaptation then leads to the need for something to change. It's not moral. It's not personality-based. It doesn't mean you suck. It doesn't mean that you're better than another person because you don't have that experience. It just means that's where your brain's at. Another concept is, well, you know, you're just being kind of like a dry drunk. And to a point, you could be that, right? Like you're just taking the medicine. That's all you're doing. You know, maybe you're getting your life together. Maybe you're not getting your life together. Either you're just taking it. And that's where we always push in, in most of the programs I've ever been involved with. Therapy, the social concepts, doing that other work so that you can impact all of the factors of your life. You've heard me talk about on this podcast before about the balance and the four pillars of life of the physical, the psychological, the spiritual, and the environmental. And I truly believe in the addiction world, all four of those pillars have to get balanced for you to either stop this medicine and for you to or, and for you to achieve any goal you want to have in your sobriety. Because we have the, this medicine is only touching the physical stuff. Now, from that, you can improve your psychological, and from that, you can improve your spiritual, and from that, you can improve your environmental and social, but it's not going to fix it. So it is important that when you get this kind of treatment or this treatment's offered, that it has these other modalities involved so that you can get well. As I said before, it's not a silver bullet, and for some people, it doesn't work. You know, they don't like it. They don't like, you know, being on it, and they want to try other ways, but I would say if you're out there and you're struggling and you can't figure it out, and you just keep using, and you go to these meetings, and you can't figure it out, and you go to these rehabs, and you can't figure it out, try it. Get with a good provider, and see if you can get help in a way 
that becomes life-giving to you because you deserve that. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about buprenorphine. You know, the other concept or the other medicine that exists is methadone. Um, as we, we talked a little bit about methadone earlier, and we've seen it kind of fall out of vogue for a little bit for some people. But where you see methadone be helpful is for two reasons. One, for people with severe, severe chronic pain. And I think chronic pain is something that really gets overvalued and then undervalued at the same time. I think it's overvalued in the concept of what Purdue Pharma done and the concept of pain and the pain is the fifth vital sign and all those terrible experiences. But we also know that some people experience profound, profound pain. They have terrible back issues or neck issues, neurological issues. And so these opiates, as we said earlier, can relieve some of that. It doesn't fix it. And I think that's important. You're not going to fix it, but it is going to calm it down. And so we see where methadone can be helpful for people who are using opiates out of pain, primarily because it's it's more powerful. We also seen as these new synthetic versions, especially in the last year and a half of fentanyl have came out, that they are so powerful and they are so damaging to the opioid receptors that you need a full agonist, meaning that full touching of the receptor to create that change. Because sometimes suboxone or buprenorphine just isn't powerful enough for the drug that you're using. So you're seeing that being used. And so for provider talks about it that way, you've got to kind of make that decision of, where am I at? What do I need? Maybe you try buprenorphine, you don't do very well with it. Maybe you still find a feel craving and withdrawal. You go back to the methadone or whatever that looks like. But that's something to talk about as you also work through those core, those core four factors of your life. So as we kind of put a bow on this episode, I think it's just really important to know that addiction is not a moral flaw, as I said earlier. Anybody can get addicted to these substances. Any human being. The amount of stories I hear of people who get a prescription following a dental surgery or following an injury and just can't stop is profound. I would say more people than not that I've came in contact with through my entire career have used from a prescription initially rather than using on the street just for fun. And so for whatever reason, their receptors are more prone to being impacted and the need for their treatment is way more biological based than maybe someone who is using amphetamines every day just to kind of get a lot of energy so they can work longer hours. So that's the first thing is that this is a biological, psychological, social problem with a medicine that can treat the biological parts of it. I think the second thing is Going back to those misconceptions, you're not trading a drug for another drug. Yeah, people do dumb things with this, but people do dumb things with a lot of stuff. And ultimately, if this saves people's lives, why not give it a chance? You see these radical places that have just been destroyed by the opioid epidemic. I think a perfect example is um, the state of Tennessee. In the state of Tennessee, it has one of the highest death rates of opioid overdose of any place in the country. And it's the highest per capita in the South. And it's also one of the most restrictive states to access these kind of treatments. Change that to a place such as like South Dakota that was one of the highest opioid overdose places in the country for many years that put a ton of money in increasing access and have seen a decline as of late of their opioid overdoses. The state of Florida is very similar. Even though they have a higher number of like deaths overall just because of the population, 
their per capita number has declined over the past three years as more money has came in from the state government in an attempt to create these changes. You've seen these places such as like California and New York who are doing all kinds of different modalities in an attempt to attack and help these certain issues. And they have success with it. You're seeing success in Southern California. You're seeing success in inner city New York of just people who are getting better access to care and ultimately they get well. So if you know someone who's struggling, if you yourself are struggling, I highly recommend you reach out. Know there's hope. Know you don't have to live that way anymore. Know that there are different treatment modalities out there. And just because maybe one clinic doesn't work for you very well doesn't mean another one won't. It doesn't mean that one medicine doesn't work for you well, the other one won't. doesn't mean just because NA or AA didn't work for you, you're unhelpable. doesn't mean because you went to church and they were mean to you. doesn't mean that because you went to a certain group and you didn't get a lot of whatever. doesn't mean it's not helpable. And it doesn't mean that this medicine is the overall help for you either. It just means that there's different opportunities and there's hope. And as long as you keep pursuing hope, you create an opportunity. The last thing I'll say is that in this world, no matter what, there's a drug called Narcan. And Narcan is a reversal drug. It's widely accessible at pharmacies. You can get it online. You can get it from certain primary care providers and community clinics. You can look online and find a Narcan locator who has it and get it. Have it on you. If you know someone who's using opiates, put it in your car. Have it with you because it is the reversal drug. It will go through and knock all those opiates off those receptors, reverse that respiratory depression, and save their life. And I treat people who without them being reversed by Narcan, maybe six months prior, three months prior, they would have never had the opportunity to get sober. They would have never had the opportunity to be involved in their family's life in any way. But because someone had that nasal injector, they had their life saved and ultimately they created an opportunity to live. So no matter what your views are, I highly recommend that we increase as much access as we possibly can for people to get the help that they need. Because in my opinion, 220 people dying every single day from crap that comes from a plant that was synthetically made by terrible companies or illegal people, man, that's too much. One is too much. Create change.